0: The following episode of Annals On Call is brought to you by Annals
1: of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. In this case, in a seafood market in Wuhan, a new virus that's moved into human populations. And on average, each old case has made more than one new case before it got better.
0: basic research report from the Annals of Internal Medicine in early February 2020. The article is titled, Reporting Epidemic Growth and Reproduction Numbers for the 2019 Novel Coronavirus, 2019-NCOVE Epidemic. Discussing this article is Dr. David Fisman, who is a professor in the Division of Epidemiology, at the Dalhousie School of Public Health in Toronto. He is a physician who is an expert in infectious diseases and particularly the epidemiology of infectious diseases. We hope this discussion will help you better understand the spread of COVID and how we might consider decreasing the rate of that spread. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Well, David, thank you very much for joining us. Obviously, all of our listeners are very interested in the details of how this virus spreads and what to expect. Your letter in the annals gives us a way to start to think about it. So maybe you could start out by explaining the model and what primary care internists, hospitalists, and
1: residents should understand about the spread of viruses? First, thank you very much for recording me, because this is a real honor and privilege. Most of the um, recent emerging infectious disease events, I might even say crises, that we've passed through, certainly in the Americas, North North and South America, but also via threats of importation, say with Ebola, have a commonality. They're RNA viruses, so they're changeable little critters, whether you're you're talking about uh, uh, Zika, Ebola, uh, chikungunya, COVID, SARS, MERS. So they have that commonality. And the other interesting commonality that they have is that they're animal derived. So we seem to be creating increasing risk for ourselves moving forward via the way we interact with other living creatures on the planet and via the way we interact with our, our physical environment and our living, and basically our ecosystems. That sets the stage. Now, when viruses jump from animals to humans, that can happen in a couple of different ways. It can um, occur in a manner where humans are basically dead ends. So you have a zoonotic transmission event, like early cases of MERS, where individuals get infected with this virus, but it goes no further. We see this a lot with H5N1 influenza where people get infected from chickens, but they don't tend to infect other people. Other viruses have the ability to leap from animals to humans and then basically become human to human communicable. And COVID-19 is an example of that. Ebola is an example of that. SARS is an example of that and so forth. And when we try to quantify that risk, what makes these events so scary is not just the lethality of the viruses, because H5N1 Flu has, we think, about a 25 to 50 percent case fatality. So if you get it, you're you're in trouble. But it's not transmissible person to person, except very in a very limited way to create sort of small family clusters. What's much scarier to us globally is viruses that have high case fatality, like SARS-2 slash COVID-19 seems to, like the original SARS the first, which had 17 percent case fatality and and was quite readily person to person transmissible. The reason those events are so scary is because you have the phenomenon of exponential growth, where you start with a case or a few cases, in this case in a seafood market in Wuhan, probably seems like a reasonable story, where you have a, a new virus that's moved into human populations. And on average, Each old case has made more than one new case before it got better. So you think about that if a reproduction number is, let's say, three, which is probably pretty close to what this thing has on average. And that's another story because the reproduction number jumps around for COVID. But you would go from one case to three cases to nine cases to 27 cases to 81 cases and so on and so forth. Um, So you get a very rapidly expanding epidemic in terms of numbers. And that does two things. One is it obviously damages a lot of people. The other thing is when you have a large reproduction number, you can rapidly overwhelm healthcare. So, if we get this happening in the context of a hospital, you can take hospitals down because not only are all your assets occupied, all your ventilators are in use, and you've still got more folks going into respiratory failure in the emergency room, but you experience what we experienced in Toronto during SARS, which is you start to lose your healthcare providers because they become patients too. So this can be a very scary process and it's all the more frightening because of exponential growth. So our motivation was to take a very simple, I don't even know if other modelers would call it a model. It's really just a little simple math experiment that you could do in a spreadsheet where you think about what would the total case count look like if I had a reproduction number of 2 or 3 and I started with one case on some date, two cases, four cases, eight cases, 16, 32 and grew this out. And of course, these curves can be quite alarming because they get very big. But human beings don't just stand there kind of slack-jawed and watch epidemics grow. We do things about them. And that's what they've done in Wuhan and hopefully other places too, where we try to distance people. We try to use personal protective items as, as clinicians. Uh, we try to use quarantine and isolation if we don't have a vaccine. And all of those have impacts on that reproduction number and pull that growth curve down. So what we did is we put together a very simple little app that you can play with. <laughs> if you have some downtime, you can play with on the on the web and do experiments. It, it's a, It's a little bit out of date now because this was designed for a Chinese epidemic. At this point, one of the few places on Earth that's controlled this successfully has been China. Uh, but we're still updating it with worldwide cases. And you can say, well, you know, attempts at control started here. We, as a default, have January 24th, which is the day the city of Wuhan went on full lockdown. And you can say, well, relative to what we would have expected for growth with a reproduction number of two to three, what does growth actually look like based on reported cases? And the model will sort of create a little contour plot. And what you hope to see is you hope to see the actual reported cases crossing those lines, crossing those lines horizontally, because that means that control is getting better and better and better and better over time. Now, unfortunately, as we plot this out, what you see is you do see that phenomenon when you restrict it to China cases. What you unfortunately see now with events in Iran and Italy and uh, uh, South Korea, and of course, I'm sure you're very glad to see this happen in the U.S., As testing's gotten downloaded from the federal level to the state level, you've predictably got some climbing case counts. So worldwide, we have cases actually starting to increase exponentially. So (laughs) unfortunately, you can probably look for that in terms of the, the case count starting to cross these contours vertically as this starts to grow exponentially again for the next little bit until we all sort of, as a planet, get our collective act together. Yeah. So, so it's a, it's a tool to sort of explore and intuit and you can play with alternate scenarios. Uh, unfortunately, because of how big this has gotten, it, it's, it's become impossible on the app to go back to when this all emerged, probably sometime in November, and seed the epidemic with different numbers of cases, as may have happened in that, that seafood market, and see how introducing different numbers of cases changes the curve and so forth. But it was just, a we hope, the first of several tools that people can use to just try to understand risk and disease dynamics and how epidemics grow because, you know, we're all interested in this as clinicians, because we're going to be managing these patients. But there's this added dimension with viruses that seem to be very transmissible in healthcare settings, which is, you know, we're also worried about our own own health and safety. So I think we're, you know, even if you're not an infectious disease modeler, I think this resonates with people because um, it's a bit personal for us as internists.
0: One of the things that we're familiar with is uh, influenza. If you were going to do the same type of reproductive analysis with
1: influenza, is this more, less, or about the same? We could do this with influenza, too. And in fact, one of the failings of this very simple model in contrast to influenza, this is probably a better representation of influenza than it is of COVID-19, because influenza probably partly because of the large numbers of relatively mild infections, influenza is much more homogeneous in terms of what the reproduction number is case by case. You know, every case makes, you know, 1.7 new cases before it gets better. One of the really tricky things with COVID-19, and the reason this is like, you know, this is like a kind of crazy roller coaster ride for a lot of us, is the volatility in the reproduction number. We probably have something with COVID-19 that people talk about as Pareto distributed or not, which I know sounds fancy, but folks will be familiar with that as the 80-20 rule. 80% 80 of the stuff belongs to 20% of the people. 80% of the stuff comes from 20% of the people. For me as a university professor, 95% of my headaches come from 5% of my students, things like that. Uh, so, So in the context of infectious diseases, when we have a Pareto distributed or not, Uh, not all cases are created equal. And you may have a situation where, say, 70% of the cases, secondary cases come from 30% of the primary cases. Another term for that is super spreader events. And because things can be very quiet and then explode, as I think people have just seen happen in in the state of Washington, where, you know, it seems like there's nothing going on, then all of a sudden you've got a long-term care outbreak. Um, It really can be quite distressing and quite difficult to deal with if you don't kind of know what's happening. And that's what's happening. So in fact, what, we, what we've what we represented here is a really simplistic representation of COVID-19 that doesn't capture some of its special signatures, like its volatility. I read
0: today that uh, China had the least number of new reported cases by a lot. Uh, just uh, in the news as we're recording, is their reproductive rate going down Because of the restrictions they put on, or
1: does it burn out? No, it wouldn't have burned out yet. It's kind of, uh, uh, for me, as someone who lives in Canada, which has a population about the size of California, it's a bit mind-blowing to know how big Hubei province in China is. It's about twice the size of Canada. So even though they have 70 or 80,000 cases, and you can inflate that by some number for cases that may have been missed... This would not flame out because it's exhausted the susceptibles. There's a real simple math expression, which is the reproduction number goes down over time during an epidemic because it burns through susceptibles just as a forest fire eventually burns itself out because it runs out of trees to burn. But the simple expression in a really well-mixed population would be when the number of susceptibles in the population is is a fraction lower than one over R-naught. That's when you get a, an effective reproduction number that's, that's just dipping below one. And what that means is now each old case is going to make less than one new case before it gets better. That means the epidemic has peaked and you're on the downward slope. Because these things tend to be pretty symmetrical, that still means you've got half the way, you're only at the halfway point when it peaks. But when you past the peak, you also do know that things are going to get progressively better that's unlikely to have happened because of exhaustion of susceptibles in China. Rather, it reflects their very dramatic efforts at control, which, to my understanding, used old-fashioned Victorian public health practice. That's quarantine of people thought to be at risk of infection, isolation of cases, and massive social distancing. That's shutting schools, shutting down public gatherings, closing transportation links, and distancing people from each other, reproduction numbers are just the product of contact numbers per unit time times probability of transmission per contact times duration of infection. So we work on effective duration of infection by isolating people, take them out of circulation so they're infecting times shorter. We work on probability of transmission per contact with uh, personal protective items, like masks, gowns, gloves. And then we work on contact through challenging but highly effective social distancing measures. So, for example, in 1918, there's been some, uh, there's a paper about 10 years ago in, in PNAS about early social distancing during the great pandemic in 1918. And the cities in the US that introduced social distancing early, and that's banning pub- mass public gatherings, things like concerts, things like. Big sports events, closed schools, closed churches. Those places did better in terms of mortality than places that did not enforce large scale social distancing. And they've done that in China. And what you see from China, and you also see it from Singapore and Hong Kong, which are places that did the same thing, is it works. The difficulty is it's a hard sell because there are huge economic costs. If you just imagine, I'm just thinking here in Toronto. <laughs> how it would go over if you told people you were suspending the Toronto Raptors games for the rest of the basketball season or, or the hockey games. I mean, it's sort of, uh, and in my mind, I was sort of seeing these scenes of, of pitchforks and torches in the streets. I, I, so you need to set the stage and you set the stage via surveillance, which I hope we are going to scale up in Ontario, because you have to case find. What Washington has taught us is this is out there but it can be very, in California too, it can be very quiet for a while. And if you don't beat the bushes for the cases, you learn about it when it explodes. And um, if you learn about cases and can tell people, look, this is spreading in our community. This is why we have to do this. this is to protect all of us. It's got a high case fatality, especially in older people. Then I think you start to be able to have that conversation. If all appears to be well and nobody knows about any cases, it's awfully hard to tell them you're canceling their basketball games. It seems like one of the
0: problems here is how mild the infection is in 75, 80% of the patients, so it's really hard to even know to screen
1: them. Exactly. No, I think that's that's right on. That's the, I don't want to anthropomorphize a virus, but it's hard not to, and I feel like that's the sneaky trick here relative to SARS, because it's kind of SARS, but... It did this sneaky trick of just being that much less consistently virulent than SARS that you can miss a lot of cases where people have cough and they have fever, but it's mild illness and many of them will get better. As you say, the numbers from China suggest that's about 80% of people. The other 20% have severe pneumonia and need to be hospitalized. And of those folks, it looks like a quarter go to the ICU. So it's, it's a very virulent disease. But a lot of transmitting probably goes on from mildly infected individuals, and that makes it really hard to control. What I've been hoping for here in Ontario, and we're not there yet, and maybe, you know, as we're talking about how smart the ID division is at UAB, maybe you can be smart where we're being kind of dumb, is what I'd like to see here is we don't have that many people provincially on ventilators with undiagnosed pneumonia in the province of Ontario. I would like to see every single one of those folks with severe unexplained pneumonia subject to COVID-19 testing. And I'd like to see add-ons of COVID-19 tests. You can't test in every single primary care clinic in the province of Ontario. We have 14 million people here. But what you could do is you could do sentinel site surveillance at outpatient clinics and emergency rooms, places where people are going to present when they have relatively mild upper respiratory illness. Because as you say, that's going to be most of the COVID-19 cases. At this point, you know you have community transmission in the U.S., I strongly suspect we have community transmission here in Toronto, and we are not going to know about that unless we test people with relatively mild respiratory illness who don't have classic, you know, ground glass on chest X-ray and are going into ARDS. So I think we need to be smart about this. You can't, as I was telling a friend, there's a reason that countries spend billions of dollars on stealth technology for their air forces. It's because you can't fight an enemy you can't see. And this virus is our enemy, and the way we see it is through smart public health surveillance. And we can't fight it if we can't see it. I think that we
0: really appreciate your observations on this and helping us understand what may well happen over the next weeks and months as we try to get better data. And let's make sure I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I think the key here is really good surveillance so we can actually figure out how fast it's reproducing and understand how widespread it is in a community so that we can know when this community really has to take austere measures.
1: I think that's right. You're not putting words in my mouth. I'll uh, steal the words from a a colleague I admire a lot in the UK, a fellow named Stephen Riley, uh, who's at Imperial College and is a mathematical epidemiologist and pointed out, and this is consistent with The limited data from 1918, from the pandemic, is proactive social distancing works a lot better than reactive social distancing. But in order to have the political capital to enact social distancing, which inconveniences everyone, it's going to ruin everyone's day. It's going to be tough for businesses. It's going to be tough for commerce. It's going to be tough for trade. It's going to be tough for travel. But the idea is it works better if you do it sooner And the reason to do it sooner is it's short-term pain for long-term gain, but you don't have the political capital to do that if you're not able to identify um, uh, the cases around you. So proactive beats reactive in the long term, both in terms of health effects and deaths but also in terms of the economic costs. And the economic costs are part of this. I think, you know, we're talking at a time when the stock markets um, in uh, high-income countries took a beating last week. I believe they bounced back up a little bit in the U.S. yesterday. But the economic costs of this are very real. The implications for supply chains are very real. And um, we need to be smart about this. We We know how these things work and we Somewhat know what works, and the Chinese have actually and the Singaporeans have shown how to do it. In kind of pointing to China and Singapore, what I am going to say is that those countries seem to have a mix of authoritarianism that allows them to intervene in people's lives in a way that I think would be challenging in North America and competence. I think we have a lot of competence in North America, but In Canada and the U.S., historically, these have not been authoritarian countries, and I think there's resistance to the idea that the government steps in and tells you you can't do this now because of an epidemic. I think in countries, just to segue to to Iran, which I think you know I I like to talk about, because I think Iran's a, a real threat to other countries at the moment you have authoritarianism, but you don't have competence. So we have competence, but not authoritarianism. They have authoritarianism, but no competence. And if you have one, but not the other, it gets a lot harder to control this thing. Thank you so much
0: for uh, joining us. And I'm sure that everyone has learned a great deal, both from your article and from your explanation of the article. It's such a pleasure. It's an honor to talk to you. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This most interesting model and discussion of emerging data related to the model suggest strongly what public health measures can be used to decrease the reproduction rate. The problem, as Dr. Fisman uh, explained, is that each person who tests positive for COVID is likely to infect two or more people. The way we can prevent this from becoming as large an epidemic as we fear is to take strong public health measures with surveillance and using very strict quarantine type measures and very strict public health measures to try to decrease the spread. This seems to have worked in at least two countries thus far and is not working in places where such strict measures are not being used. This work is sobering, but informative, and uh, we should heed it as an understanding of the danger of the spread of this virus. Thank you for listening to Annals on Call.
1: For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org oncall on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.